This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Beneath the Tall Black Door, Four Seasons on River Street Parables. And the author is Dr. Jacqueline K. Kelsey. And Dr. Kelsey joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Kelsey. Good morning, Steve. I'm very glad to be talking with you. Well, we're grateful to have you with us. Uh, You have a unique view of the world, especially, Mm. you know, especially through the world of Mother Nature. And that's what this book, there's seven stories, seven parables, even seven animals, right? That's correct. And seven life problems. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they're going to give us a, kind of a view of how to solve life's problems and, and seeing it through Mother Nature's point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will say that Mother Nature is around us all the time, so the appearance of animals really is just our learning to pay attention in the moment to what's in front of us. Because it is always there, but we're not always paying attention to the finite, uh, small animal um, that comes to us, crosses our path, so to speak, as Native Americans would help to teach us. So it's that paying attention, and sometimes when we're the most vulnerable and the most need, uh, we can do that the best. I really liked your idea uh, that you mentioned about a, a worldview, looking at the, the whole picture. And I think I put this um, finite uh, focus, so to speak, in a much larger context of seeing us in relationship to nature in general as a worldview. Well, as you yeah, put it, you say <laughs> these stories. These stories illustrate the healing touch of nature in our affairs, but we have to imagine life as children do. We kind of lose that along the way, and that's too bad, isn't it? Children, Mm -hmm. they have such an innocent view of life, Mm -hmm. and and things connect with them so easily. Mm -hmm. You know, I became aware of that in myself, uh, the ability to do that, because of these little animals that would come onto our front porch and um, in our yard and sometimes in the larger environment of the rural area. But um, I didn't know that I particularly was looking at things as a child would, but I got down on their level just because I was so interested in them and their being uh, available to me. And it didn't take but a moment for me to get on their level. And um, by level, I mean sort of their mentality and their way of being themselves. And I just kind of let loose of myself, I think, is what it was. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that. Well, before we go any further, tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, well, right. I grew up rural. I'm a rural girl. Uh, I grew up in southern Illinois, and we had a family farm. 
so that I was used to being around uh, fields and farm buildings and and being in a rural community, I think I had a penchant, so to speak, toward a whole community that was connected to rural life. And so when I um, spent uh, many years teaching, I uh, decided I wanted to move myself farther ahead. And when I tried to think what I'd like to research for a doctorate, I thought, oh, wow, I'm really interested in love of the land. And I think I'd like to know more how that really happens and what that means. And so I started to research using um, all kinds of resources, religion, philosophy, agriculture, forestry, literature, and to define a worldview through those sources that would support my own inner knowledge. You know, I wasn't looking for what I didn't know. I already knew it. So I spent quite a few years working on a doctorate after I had taught in public schools. And then I went on to college teaching. So my life has been... um, Partly academic, partly experiential, but I I fly I fly through experience mostly rather than books. Well, why do you feel so connected to the philosophy of, say, the American Indians? What why do you connect so well with them? Oh well, I think uh, we have Native American heritage for one, even though I have never been able to. Uh, find out exactly what tribe, uh, by folk story, in our community it was known that we were uh, Native American, at least in part. And I think that um, penchant toward um, the land uh, comes from that mind of mine that is just inherent. Um, but I think living in a community that's rural supports that. There are a lot of people, I think, who can share that view that I have, even though they live in the city. Um, you know, a lot of people love nature and want to be connected with it and do it uh, in parks and zoos and um, by reading and choosing to watch nature programs, and they express it as well. Maybe not as fully, but uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. as we, so as we look at these seven parables, uh, this different view of life through mm-hmm. Mother Nature's eyes, through animals mm-hmm. to help us kind mm-hmm. of uh, see things as they really are, give us an example of one of your stories, mm-hmm. you know, what's the, what the focus is. Well, all right. I I think my favorite one is called Dance Above the Flowers. And uh, it's about a hummingbird that chooses to dance above the flowers without ever dipping into the nectar of the flower. And we had a lot of tall flowers along our Victorian porch balustrade and bird came to me several times, but the story is about its seven consecutive visits to me, uh, 
during a time when I was quite sad. We were attached to a miniature schnauzer back in the Midwest, and it was dying, and I knew that, and I was really uh, grieving it. And this bird came to me every day. Now, the significant thing was that it came to me no matter where I was in the yard. It wasn't just the porch. If I were looking out the porch window, it was there on a hanging basket of flowers. Or if I was next to the garage, uh, it just flew near the hostel or on the back wall rock ledge. And so I began to get used to it and had to notice it uh, as a, a companion. So I was quite uh, taken with it. I hadn't had that happen before. So one day I realized it was gone. And I thought, well, it's very wrong to you know, demand or command that that bird reappear, make me feel better. But I wished for it to return. And the desire of my heart was met because in the distance I saw a small winged creature flying at great speed across the river and toward the porch. I was just amazed that at my very thought, that flight took place. Well, it didn't stop. The bird flew past the post on the porch, and I was very sad because I thought, well, that's part of it. I wanted you to stop see me. <laughs> so the moment I thought that, please come back. I want to see you. You're so beautiful and you fly so fast. It double timed it back around the post and came in front of the flowers right in front of my face. Well, mm. I learned to believe that what you wish for, you can have. And of course, it demanding it doesn't bring it. So as time went on and the visits progressed through the seven, the, the great winged bird did leave. And I, of course, had to think, well, the joy that it brought me is uh, sufficient. And uh, I must accept the the death of my dear little pet in the Midwest. So the story goes on and uh, it includes a, a great large bumblebee resting on the railing and it took the place of the bird and I thought of that scripture, uh, death has no sting. I looked mm. at that bee and it was perfectly still. I thought, oh my, what what is going on here? I got as close as I thought I should. And so I went in to get uh, some water for it on a leaf petal and brought it back and the bee was gone. It was nowhere. It had not fallen on the ground. And so I suppose it did fly away, but it came for long enough to give me the message Death has no sting. And it was at almost that very time that uh, my sweet Gigi passed on. And so I had been taught by the joy of the hummingbird and the message of the bee how to deal with death. And um, that is a Native American teaching that the hummingbird does bring joy. So I was in tune with my heart and nature and being... Um, 
part of Native American tradition. Does that explain it a little? <laughs> very, very good. Very well said. And uh, you took uh, me right there. I think everyone felt oh, where you were taking us. Let's uh, just uh, let's switch gears a little bit here in just yes. the time mm -hmm. we have left. Just to talk about your new book, Flight Beyond the oh, Stars. Mm. Isn't that appropriate? Tell us about, that about the, the theme family. of that book. Well, it too, like the... Um, the small bird uh, focuses on great flight. We know that the, the little bird, um, the winged creature, can go clear to South America. Well, I'm suggesting that we can fly even beyond the stars. That is quite a sojourn to go into the dark. And I believe it's a suggestion that I learned from my own life that I have flown in the dark, and that is about the only way that um, one can fly into the light is to go beyond the dark. Probably I uh, got this message from my namesake, uh, who was an aviatrix, and uh, my mother named me after her. She was a World War II pilot and trainer of pilots, Jacqueline Cochran. And uh, so I have had that uh, thought in mind a great deal of my life that we are in flight. And I'm uh, interested in people's creativity. And I think this flight is all about coming to yourself and being able to create from the inside out. And it's no wonder that we feel like we're failures sometimes because we try to become something that is outside of ourselves. And I'm inviting mm -hmm. people to come to themselves and to the tangible substance of God around them, which includes nature. What is very concrete is, is mostly uh, what is available to us. And although it sounds like a paradox to fly beyond the stars, I'm, I'm suggesting that as a mental and heart flight to come to a realization of uh, the concrete and to have that bring out a creativity. To come to please know God. Please read what you exactly. Oh. Come to know God. Oh, please read what you've <laughs> written to the reader. You've got a short okay. uh, message that you'd like to well, share with us. Good. Thank you. I, ho I hope this says it, and well, I'll ask you when we're done. Every day in life is a transport, an ecstasy, if lived with true self-expression, which in the end comes from God, your soul's home. The right kind of self-expression presupposes wholeness. The full living out of life with awareness of your inner self and the ambience surrounding us. All of this leads to wholeness of personality, and when in our dreams and desires we fly beyond the stars, we are likely to reach the substance of God, the real complete happiness grounded in satisfaction with ourselves and with life, which is the tangible expression of the substance of God. Does Very that well said. at all? <laughs> that certainly does. Does that seem to make sense to you as a, a flight well, every, pattern or mission? Exactly. 
Well, everything yeah. you've said, uh, Dr. Kelsey, has made sense, and we just need to kind of step back and get balance to our lives and, and see life in a little okay. different way and understand there's really no limit to what we can do because it's all Absolutely. around us. We see evidence, right? Yes, that is true. You spoke that very well. And well, I Dr. Kelsey, you. tell us how to get your book. Get, tell us how to get your book, mm. Beneath the Tall Black Door. And then, of course, uh, okay. Flight Beyond the Stars is coming out uh, the, later this summer. Yes. Well, I have a website that people can read more about the books on. It's www.jacquelinekelsey70. I live on interstate70.com. <laughs> All right. Mm -hmm. Very good. That's well, thanks one again way. for being with us. Author House. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Right, AuthorHouse.com, and of course, anyone can go to any of the online retail bookstores or even walk into That's a bookstore right. and, and ask for your book, and they'll order it for you. Yes, that is true. Mm -hmm. Thank you, uh, Dr. I, Kelsey, for being with us on yeah. Author Talk. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm -hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Mind Shift, Your Life Doesn't Have to Suck. And the author is Marty Lerman, Dr. Marty Lerman, and Doc Marty joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Doc. Hi, Steve. 
Great to have you with us. Uh, that title kind of um, almost makes you chuckle, but it is a very sad point of view by a lot of people that because they do believe they're just their life it sucks, right? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. It's one of the things we're, we're discovering that more and more people are so wrapped into negative thinking, negative beliefs, and, and negative events that seem to surround us that uh, getting into that, that expectation of bad things seems to be falling all over the place. So, yeah, the, the title, uh, you know, really, I wanted it to be descriptive and, and at the same time wanted to at least present some humor to people to, to get them understanding it. it doesn't have to be that way. We can actually make very, very positive changes in our lives without having to involve a lot um, that, that really takes us beyond what we believe is possible. So again, the title, Mind Shift, and as you write, it's a collection of real stories of people who learned how to access their unconscious minds in ways they did not initially believe possible. And this whole use of hypnotherapy, that's something that you have specialized in for a long time? Yeah, I started doing hypnosis work back, well, the initial training with the Erickson people was back in the 1990, 91, 92. And, and it was really just a, a curiosity at the time because I, I was wondering, you know, is, is there something else I can be doing besides doing traditional psychotherapy with my clients? And discovered this whole wealth of, of material that I really hadn't been exposed to in graduate school and certainly not in continuing ed things that I had been pursuing in, in a traditional kind of psychology background. And it just opened my mind up to something that I, I got more and more curious about. The more I tried to do, you know, do the work, discovered that it was a very, very quick turnaround for clients to be able to make changes. Can everyone be hypnotized? Pretty much. Uh, the, the, the prime ingredient is whether you have an imagination. If you can imagine things being a certain way or being different, then there's a good chance you've already experienced putting yourself into hypnotic trances without it being induced by somebody else. You know, when we look at children playing and just amazed at how they can get into their world. And, and really, it's nothing more than a hypnotic you know, trance that they're, they're putting themselves into. And, and what we do with adults is to give people permission to get back into that imaginative state of mind so we can ignite into where the, uh, the subconscious part of the mind is. Well, that makes sense, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone explain it that way. It's just using our imagination. That uh, seems like it ought to be simple to do. It is because we do it all the time without labeling it that way. Whenever we walk into a room and forget why we walked in there. We're driving down the street and we, might, we meant to make the turn back there, but we went right past it. Anytime the conscious train of thought gets diverted, we've created a trance effect for ourselves. You know, what we don't do is we don't label it as hypnosis because it's not being done to us. We're actually doing it to ourselves. But the, the mind you know, actually has those two components to it, the conscious part and the subconscious part. And when we're in the subconscious world, we're in a trance. So what, what hypnosis essentially is doing is creating that opportunity to, to go into the, in the subconscious mind. And as we experience it, all kinds of interesting things can happen. Some might say that you've gotten into some real controversy dealing with attention def deficit disorder, ADD. That's such a very confusing and frustrating problem am amongst kids today. Parents don't know what to do. But you say that uh, you, you can actually help kids with that state. 
Indeed, indeed. Yeah, the, what we know about attention deficit disorder, ADHD with hyperactivity component connected to it, is that we have certain kids that seem to be wired a little bit differently than other kids. And the, the true diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder involves the neurology of the brain just not working quite right, and it forces people to want more stimulation. And the mind is constantly striving for it. So they get these kids to get hyper, wanting that stimulation to activate their brains and keep it going. And we also know there's a lot of children who appear to be hyperactive, and yet they don't fit that diagnostic label, and they're still being put on medications, simply because parents and teachers get real frustrated wanting their kids to be able to learn and, and to pay attention and stay focused. So we have this enormous number of children, millions in the United States, who are either being medicated because they have the outward appearance of being hyperactive or because they've actually gone through the assessment process with a, a qualified you know, psychiatrist and have actually you know, been diagnosed that because the neurology of the brain isn't working the way it's supposed to. And what, what I've discovered is that when we teach children how to be in charge of their own thinking, which is the, the, the preferred way that most parents would want their children functioning, and in fact, most children as they get older want to be in charge of their own thinking process. They don't like the idea of taking medication. Once we get them to be able to do that, then we open up the possibility of internal control. So a child can be taught how to weed out the distractions and not allow it to affect what it is they're supposed to be focused on, as well as to be able to create within their own minds the ability to not only understand where those distractions are coming from, but to also be in charge of when to be distracted, how to be distracted, and how to use the creative part of their mind to problem solve. So we can effectively bypass a lot of that interruptive thought process. And as the kids learn it, they get better. Now we have thousands upon thousands of returning military veterans. Uh, we've all heard about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It seems like uh, many seem to think they have to live with it forever, but you have a different point of view. Absolutely. The, the experiences that people have when they're traumatized by something the mind just doesn't want to take in it is a devastating experience. And whether it's happening to folks fighting in wars or whether it's happening to children who are exposed to things that are beyond their minds being able to understand, we're, we're exposed to trauma. The mind doesn't like it. It doesn't like it to such a degree that it'll go into shock sometimes in order to ward it off. And people can actually black out from those kind of experiences because consciously there's no way to make sense out of it. And yet we continue to strive to make sense out of it, even though the conscious part of the mind is telling us we can't do this. So what we end up with is, is the flashback experiences and the re-experiencing of the traumas over and over and over again because the conscious part of the mind is looking for logic. That's what it does. It's looking for the rationale to make sense out of it, to let it go. And invariably what we run into are people asking themselves, why? Why did this event occur? Why am I the only one left behind? Why did this person do this nasty thing to me when I was a child? And there's no answers because there's not an answer to a why question when the question shouldn't be why. The question needs to be, how do I move on from that experience? It happened. You know, it was devastating at the time I experienced it, and yet I'm still alive. I can still move forward with my life. What I need to understand is how do I separate out these horrible feelings about this event from the event itself? Because we all experience bad things to us and yet we seem to be able to move on from those things in some degree as long as we understand that it's not continuing to happen 
and emotionally, we can move from that experience because there's no longer a fear that it could happen again. So what we do with the hypnosis process is teach people how to detach the feelings from the event and then reinforce that over and over again so the, the mind actually looks for alternative ways of understanding that event. And then we get past the why question, which is how people will overcome their traumas. And a great example of, of this is how you helped uh, what you call uh, Chapter 3, Helping a Hero, Ryan, a returned veteran. You really changed his life. Well, what I did was give him the tools that he needed. He did the actual changing part, which is it, it, it's one of the, the, the myths of, of what you know, hypnotherapy, hypnosis actually does for people. In the process, we're opening up the creative part of the mind to do what it will do, which is to find solutions to those problems. We're not actually doing the solving part. And in that regard, hypnosis has often been confused with being a mind control you know, technique. When in fact, we're not controlling the mind. We're opening it. The mind is in control of itself. So when, I, when I'm working with Ryan or any of the returning vets, what, what I'm looking for is the opportunity to get their mind to a place well, they can start doing their own problem solving. And as it starts to happen, they start to recover from the experience. And it, it, it goes on to a point where it actually will solve the problems. So, yeah, with, with Brian as well as you know, a lot of the other folks that I've worked with, the, the, the whole key to the process of recovering from it is teaching them how to be in control, which is the one issue that continues to happen to people whenever they're traumatized is the fear of being out of control. So we can, we can break out of what we think uh, there's, uh, you know, we're kind of shut behind all these closed doors and we're really only limiting ourselves, the, what I'm hearing you say. We impose these limitations on ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the limiting beliefs that we give ourselves are the very things that get in the way of us moving forward. We get locked into a system of, of believing things or the messaging process that we've absorbed over the years, believing that that message has to be true, and yet we're not validating it. We're just taking it on faith. So we end up trapping ourselves into a limited understanding or a limited perspective on what's real or what's possible. And we see it over and over again with folks. I know I did a lot of work down in the Houston area after the Katrina uh, tragedy that happened in, in Louisiana. And Houston ended up taking in a lot of folks who were displaced because of that event. And what we, what we saw were a, a, an enormous number of people who got victimized because of the event and couldn't see past it because their belief system wouldn't allow, allow them to see themselves as anything but victims. And yet some of the people who went through that identical experience seemed to bounce out of that, recovered from it, rebuilt their families you know, to a direction where it was positive, and then moved on. And the obvious question that we have to ask ourselves if we're doing any kind of, of, of help with, with people is, what's the difference? Why do some people seem to be able to get trapped in this stuff and some people seem to be able to bounce out of it? They're being exposed to the same events. So we know it's not the event that's causing it. It has to be our perception and how we internalize that, that process. So if we can go in and help people rearrange their perception, then we're doing something real positive for them because it allows them the ability to solve their own internal problems and move on with their lives. Well, we all see the ads on TV. The pharmaceutical industry, of course, invests billions of dollars in marketing all kinds of drugs uh, that are going to cure everything, but half the commercial talks about the side effects. Uh, are there any side effects to hypnosis? Absolutely none. And it's a good feeling. People come out feeling very relaxed. Uh, you can't overdose on it. 
there's nothing addictive about it. Uh, no, people enjoy the experience, and, and it empowers them to make positive change. And it's one of the interesting things because I'm constantly being compared to the work that I do with the part that the pharmaceutical industry can provide. And, and the, the critical difference is that pharmaceuticals are not intended to cure problems. They're intended to treat them. Whereas putting people in charge of their lives gives people the opportunity to actually solve those problems so they don't persist and they don't carry on. So we're trying to avoid not only negative side effects from the chemistry that alters in the brain, but we're also giving people a very positive message that you can be in charge of this stuff. You don't need those medications if you can solve the problem. You've also helped uh, men and women with almost all forms of sexual dysfunction. That's correct. That is very correct. Yeah, the, the, the sexual issue, which is, is, is real interesting, is I, I got certified as a sex therapist long before I started doing hypnosis work. And, and what I discovered is that, obviously, the, the biggest sex organ that human beings have is actually the brain. And how we perceive our sexuality will determine how we perform and how we function. So if we can alter the perception of that process, then we have an enormous opportunity to get people focusing on the simple reality that our sexuality is part of our biology. If we allow the biology to work as it's normally programmed to work, we won't have those kind of problems. You know, the, the key seems to be understanding that our sexuality is oftentimes times tied into either psychology or sociology, meaning it's being influenced by other people's thinking. So we get into all these negative perceptions and have a bad experience for whatever reason, and we get catapulted into this negative expectation that we are trapped, we can't get out of it. So every future experience becomes laden with the previous experience, which is a learned thing. It's not a biological reality. So what we do with the hypnosis is to get people back in charge of their biologies by letting it happen normally and getting all that negative thinking out of the way. And you've helped people with even bipolar disorders. We can, yeah, we can do a lot of work that's connected to how the mind anticipates bad things because, again, we're dealing with perception. If we alter perception, people feel good. It alters their chemistry. We know this from a lot of research that's been done on, on endorphins and how the endorphins, when they release from a, a peak kind of experience, tends to alter the chemistry of the brain. We know that people can laugh and actually change illnesses because that positive energy that's generated from the laughter actually creates an expectation that things are good. So the mind has a very powerful self-curing part to it. And what we do working with, with folks who have a bipolar disorder is not really to, to go after the bipolar disorder. It's to put them in a place where their mind is positively focused. And in that process, there's a lot of healing that can happen. And it may not totally cure you know, whatever that psychiatric illness is, but it certainly is going to alleviate a lot of the symptoms that are connected to it. And in one case, the, the gal that I wrote about in the book, she actually became symptom-free. And the result of not having any symptoms of the bipolar is that she didn't need the medication, which is you know, kind of a blessing for her. And, and you know, basically what, what we were able to do was to free out that part of her mind that she could actually enjoy who she was as a person. Well, Doc Marty, uh, we appreciate you being with us on Author Talk. Tell us how to get your book. Well, you can reach the book either through Author House directly. Uh, it's also available through Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's available through uh, uh, Amazon.com. Uh, it's available on ebook as well as hardcover and softcover. So just about any place where you can buy a retail book, you can buy a copy of MindShift. The title, MindShift, Your Life Doesn't Have to Suck. Dr. Marty Lerman is the author. Thank you, Marty, for being with us. You're very welcome. 
You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one's spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Survival of the Hive, Seven Leadership Lessons from a Beehive. And the authors are Deborah Mackin and Matthew Harrington. And Deb and Matt join us now on Author Talk. Hello, Deb. Hi, Steve. Steve, how are you? Great to be with us, Matt. Uh, this is going to be an interesting discussion, great alleg- an allegory, as everyone will understand this leadership lessons that we can learn from honeybees. You say this, survival of the hive utilizes the roles of bees in the hive to show us the value of servant leadership in guiding an organization to meet its goals and survive in the current world of complex change. You also say... It's a bright and colorful book. You can read it in about two hours, but it's really packed with a lot of leadership organizational principles that we all need to uh, improve and revitalize our own leadership strategy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how all this came about? We'll start with you, Deb. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Well, I've been a uh, leadership and management consultant and trainer for 29 years and work with a wide variety of organizations. So I'm often seeing the leadership issues firsthand from being right in organizations. I also do executive coaching, so I see leadership issues that way as well. And I think what one of the things that um, Matt and I were trying to do in that is to uh, create a new discussion 
a new way of discussing a lot of things about leadership that are that are repeated over and over again. You know, the importance of communication, the importance of uh, setting goals and, and getting people engaged and things like that. But we wanted a different framework for it so that, that we could generate a new discussion on it. And so I, my role in this uh, crafting of the book was to often bring in a lot of the um, experiences that I've had with the, with the pressing issues that leaders actually go through. And you, Matt? Well, uh, I'm her son, so uh, and that's kind of just a fun side <laughs> story. Um, so Deb and I have worked together over over a couple of years in our firm here, and uh, and Deb was a beekeeper and had started beekeeping and. Uh, the discussion kept coming back just in our normal meetings when talking about clients or talking about new leadership things that we were talking about. Um, Deb would always kind of allude back to, well, I'm seeing this in the hive and this in the hive. And so, you know, I think over time there was this general aha by both of us of, you know, there really are some uh, transferable traits and behaviors that we're seeing organically in a bee that could be applied to organizations and, and leadership. And so, uh, and so she and I set out on uh, an adventure to write a book about bees and write a book about leadership, and that's where I come in. Uh, my background is a little bit more in marketing uh, and advertising for the company and really getting out the, the public relations portion of our firm. Uh, but within that, you know, I'm, I'm looking a lot at the industry of leadership uh, I'm also uh, a self-prescribed um, millennial, too, and so I am that new generation that's coming into the workforce. And so it was really neat to kind of work with Deb, uh, who I don't think would mind me saying that you're a baby boomer. Right. And, uh, and so it was really neat to work with a baby boomer and a millennial and provide those different aspects and angles when you're talking about leadership and where leadership has been and where leadership needs to go. As I read what you've written about your book, uh, you make this one point that seems to really stand out, at least to begin in our discussion here. You say the old top-down command and control style of leadership is dead. I guess that's because the whole environment has changed so much. Right, and the, you know, essentially when you look at a, a beehive, it's all based on a honeycomb design hexagon type design and you see that the that the front end of one side of the cell becomes the other side of the other cell and so everything is all connected and it's all in a honeycomb design and when you think about organizations the old style is very hierarchical it's very siloed uh, people sit in meetings and they'll, they truly only sometimes talk about their own function. They don't really bring their whole brain to the meeting. And, uh, and so part of what we're talking about is that that style of functional, structured, siloed type of leadership top-down will not generate the ideas and the strategies that are needed in the competitive environments of today. There, it's just way too complex, whether it's a profit-making profit organization or a nonprofit. The issues are so profound in terms of how to grow and make money and, 
and uh, satisfy stakeholders and everything else, that everybody's brain has to be at the table. And when you look at a beehive, that's how they function. Every single bee is is busy and doing things everywhere. And uh, and that's that same kind of thinking that we felt needed to be applied to organizations today. And you're providing a fun way to look at it, too. Uh, obviously, it's very uh, relevant. It's, uh, and you call it kind of a reflective look, but you, you, you make this allegory. Now, you know, you went to the whole extent of naming the queen bee and, and having some of her mentors. I mean, uh, Matt, why did you take it to that extent? Yeah, uh, you know, when we designed the book, um, we really wanted to uh, really have a fun way, as Deb had talked about, to talk about leadership. Uh, and we thought a great way to do that would to actually be do a fable. Uh, we're big fans of Who Moved My Cheese and Peaks and Valleys, and we think that that works very well in today's uh, age where kind of the attention deficit, you've only got so much time to talk about something, and it needs to be memorable. And so we thought, you know, a, a very fun story, a very quick story, like you said, it's about a two-hour read, um, was one way that we did that. And then underneath that are some of the leadership principles. So even as you read through each chapter, there is the storyline that's going on, and then halfway through the chapter breaks into uh, reflective thoughts for today's leaders. And then at the end of each chapter, it's group discussion questions. So we really wanted to bring it from this great story, how is it applicable to today's leaders, and then how do you apply that, you know, what's the action steps moving forward even from this chapter. Uh, that being said, of course, with any good story, you need good characters too. And so uh, we developed Zink, who's a queen in waiting, and uh, and very much based off of leadership, too. Many of our leaders are kind of leaders in waiting. If they haven't uh, been thrusted into the, the throes of leadership, they're about to be. And so we kind of take this bee who's just been, just been deemed, you know, you're, you're about to be the queen. And so she's given these three mentors, and that's kind of a model that, that we believe in, too, in terms of uh, mentoring your leaders up. And so we use that model throughout the book for the three mentors to teach Zinc uh, the seven leadership lessons that you need to know in order to survive. And so, um, you know, we, we definitely talked about the characters. Zinc, interestingly enough, is obviously a queen bee, so she's female. But we went with Zinc as a name uh, because it was very asexual. And so we wanted this book to come across as, you know, yes, there is a queen bee, but it's not, you know, gender-oriented. Any leader can take uh, lessons from this book. And then her three uh, mentors are strategy, vision, and belief. And we thought that those were very fundamental in terms of, of kind of the mentorship that is going on. There needs to be a mentorship on strategy, a mentorship on the vision of an organization or a hive moving forward. And then really something around belief. Uh, what do you believe in? And so uh, belief is our probably our most uh, combative bee or mentor when it comes to Zink. He's always questioning her and making sure, you know, poking holes in what she thinks leadership is and then bringing her to a realization of what leadership actually has to be. And then plenty of other characters. But, um, but yeah, so that was part of it. And then we uh, incorporated artwork into the, the book, too. And that was feedback that we got after the manuscript was written. Uh, you know, some of the feedback we got was, uh, 
great storyline. We just need something to pull it together. You know, give us some breathing room to to reflect on the lessons that you're that you're talking about. And so I I actually had a good friend in college who was a good artist, Paul Miraglia, and uh, and after a couple of different sketches from he uh, he really pulled together this great far side looking artwork that just really lends itself to the book. And so if you go. Uh, online to our website at uh, survivalofthehive.com or you, you join our Facebook page, uh, Survival of the Hive. Um, you'll see that artwork, and of course, if you buy the book, too, you'll see the artwork as well. An example of that is at one point, Zinc is uh, getting taught about the importance of communicating, and we use that idea of uh, a footprint because the queen bee moves throughout the hive and she releases pheromones that let the hive know that everything is, uh, is fundamentally functioning effectively. And so we said to Paul, okay, we need a picture of, of um, you know, Zinc getting ready to go out and leave her footprint throughout the hive, not unlike the way a leader leaves their footprint throughout an organization. And he comes back with Zinc sitting on a, in a, like on a stoop or whatever, and putting on um, sneakers, you know, which is exactly <laughs> the kind of picture right. that we were sort of trying to create. The exactly. energy and the humor. The energy and the humor and everything else. So. Right. Well, tell me about this B2B communication waggle dance. That sounded, kind of jumped out at me. One of the titles of your, one of your chapters, the waggle dance. What is that about? So one of the things that scientists know about bees, and you can actually go on our website and see the waggle dance in action, is that, that a bee, when a bee, forager bee, comes back to the hive, and, or a scout bee comes back to the hive, they actually do, it's very much like a, almost like a figure eight type dance, where by the number of steps forward and sideways and everything else that they take, they're instructing the other bees about uh, where the flower is located, the, and then they also, in the waggling of the body, send out the scent of the flower. So that even though we might think, oh, bees just split from flower to flower, they actually uh, know what flowers they're going after based on the waggle dance that a bee has gone through. Well, we, when, when we thought about that in relationship to leaders, we realize that, you know, in a lot of ways, leaders have a waggle dance too. And some leaders waggle really well, and they communicate effectively, and they engage people, and they're energizing and inspiring. And other leaders, they have a horrible waggle dance. You know, sometimes they'll be negative and depressing and, and, and or don't waggle at all. And we thought, wow, this is a great chapter and a great way to talk about communication. So at the end, like Matt was talking about the questions in the chapter, I think the first question at the end of that chapter is, as a leader, what does your waggle dance look like? You know, and get leaders mm. to be introspective about, well, am I sending out you know, good, effective communication and, and inspirational messages, or does my waggle dance need a bit of improvement? So that's why we use uh, the waggle dance as a, as a way of looking at communication. 
As we look at today's environment, you talk about we have this multi-generational and multicultural workforce, which is really demanding a whole new paradigm, and I guess that's where you're taking us. Yeah, um, you know, at this point we have about 6,000 baby boomers a day leaving the workforce. Um, that used to be, you know, our, our senior leadership, and, and they used to be the largest uh, generation in, in the workplace. We have that middle Gen X, which is probably our mid-level, and then, of course, we have the, the millennials coming in, and they're ranging, uh, I think the latest statistic I saw was 84 million coming in in the next five years, five to ten years. And so we really do have this, uh, something we've never seen before, which is uh, three to four generations all trying to mix it up uh, with different approaches, different attitudes towards things, different loyalties and motivations. And so uh, part of the new paradigm and part of the conversation we want to start uh, with this book is, Let's talk about some of those issues that are arising when we look at uh, a multi-generational uh, workforce and, and how are you using some of the lessons to apply to each one of them. One of the lessons is called the CAMP Method of Motivation, and that's an acronym for competency, autonomy, meaningfulness, and progress. And if you go through that, you could actually figure out, you know, how do I motivate my staff or my employee? How am I building upon their competency? How am I giving them the right amount of autonomy? How am I making uh, their work meaningful? How am I showing them that they are meaningful to the organization? And then finally, how am I uh, showing progress uh, for them? And, and so that means something different to a baby boomer or a Gen X than it does to a millennial. And so uh, some of, a lot of these lessons and some of the theories that we're uh, putting out in the book, uh, again, help facilitate uh, the correct leadership that, that needs to be seen in organizations today. Deb, we have about a minute. We'll give you the last word. Okay. Well, I hope people really become enthusiastic about the book. I think many times uh, I know that organizations are looking for a book that they can use at a retreat or a conference or uh, a series of workshops to inspire their leaders. And I hope that they see survival of the hive as uh, just like years ago it might have been who moved my cheese to, um, to, to launch that leadership discussion. Uh, we do want to invite people to go to survivalofthehive.com, the website. There's materials there. We're also working on workshops and things like that that are support materials that can go along with the book. Um, and just even share with us their own stories of how they've talked about uh, the survival of their organization and the types of transformations that they're trying to achieve in their leadership. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Deborah Mackin and Matthew Harrington. Of course, we can get the book through your website and uh, any online retailer, right? That's correct, Steve. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Steve.